Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 16, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for insights on appellate law practice and salient developments from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. This week's show regards the U.S. Supreme Court in both a, a general and specific sense. We have Mark Haddad, who's handled a number of appeals before the country's court of last resort. He'll discuss his experience with those cases and the particular rigors they present. Mr. Haddad, a former clerk for Justice William Brennan and now a partner with Sidley Austin, will discuss unique strategies and novel approaches an appellate counselor would do well to apply when trying matters before the country's high court. Then, Peter Altman of Aiken Gump will be on to examine a specific Supreme Court ruling in a securities fraud appeal regarding insider tips conveyed to close friends and relatives. And tell us how this opinion clarifies the doctrine, but also leaves some important questions unanswered. Before we get to my guest, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having listened to the program. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'd also like to make one other brief housekeeping announcement. After the new year, we'll be very excited to welcome the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Tani Cantil Sakaui. She'll join the program to discuss a range of matters, including her own background, her rise to the state's high court, and most importantly, the appellate practices she finds particularly effective from counselors within her courtroom. For now, let's hear from Mark Haddad of Sidley Austin. Very happy to be joined now by Mark Haddad, a partner with Sidley and Austin, who leads their Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Division in the Los Angeles office and also co-heads their global appellate practice. Mr. Haddad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You've prepared and, and argued cases before the United States Supreme Court, and it's that topic that we'll discuss this morning. Um, but before we get into that specifically, I'd like to touch on some time that you've spent in the Supreme Court before arguing or preparing any cases for it, and that's when you, you spent time as a clerk for Justice William Brennan, um, obviously a, a tremendously influential jurist from the, the past century um, who's left his mark um, on many areas of constitutional doctrine. Um, and society sort of in general. I'd love to hear a bit about your experience with Justice Brennan and, um, and, and what uh, he, he was like. Justice Brennan was a absolutely marvelous individual. Um, he knew uh, and you know, was aware of his extraordinary place in history. Um, you know, by the time I clerked for him, he'd been on the bench, I think, almost 30 years or so. So he, he knew uh, in some sense what his legacy would be. But as an individual, he was just absolutely charming, uh, very funny, very full, uh, sort of full of life, um, and people just took to him. Uh, and of course, his clerks uh, were absolutely devoted to him. Uh, but he made you know coming to work every day just an absolute pleasure. And uh, so, you know, having a chance to be his law clerk was an incredible experience. Um, and and then just being in that uh, that building, that environment, it's such an awe-inspiring uh, building and a you know and a place. Uh, I have to say that never got old either. Uh, it was a long year, kind of grueling in some aspects, but it was an extraordinary privilege. And uh, you know when you sort of thanked your stars for every morning. A portion of his reputation centers around the idea that he, he f- could effectively persuade other jurists on the bench to come around to his point of view, which tended to be further to the left than um, that held by many of the other jurists. Did you get any sense 
working with him, how how would be able to to persuade folks in that manner? And is that the sort of thing that, that has served you in your advocacy career? You know, I didn't see it firsthand because uh, one of the special things I think about the court is that the justices do a lot of the critical work themselves and among themselves. Um, you know, when you visit the court uh, and are able to take a tour, um, you see the conference room uh, that's uh, adjacent to the Chief Justice's chambers where the justices meet to talk about the cases after the arguments. And the, to me anyway, the extraordinary thing about that room is that only the justices are in the room. Uh, when they sit and meet, the very heavy doors close, and the nine of them are there, sitting around a table, looking at each other, and they talk and they decide uh, how they're going to vote and announce their votes. Um, and that uh, your justice may, you know, report to you afterward on uh, certain aspects of the conference, but by and large, those discussions are closed to uh, to the law clerks and everybody else, uh, you know, except for the results. Um, and, you know, just that said, Justice Brennan was very gregarious, very charming, very, you know, had a very direct, uh, and engaging and funny manner. So, um, and he would talk to other justices individually. Uh, and again, I wouldn't be part of those conversations, but just from seeing the way he engaged with the clerks, the way he engaged with, uh, other judges, uh, whom he knew, uh, uh, and who would come visit him, um, you know, for morning coffee or for lunch. Um, he was charming, and he was persuasive just as a personality. And I think uh, if I took anything away uh, from it, it's just that, you know, if you're if you're reasonable and you've thought through your views and you're direct and sincere and you listen as well as, uh, you know, express your thoughts, um, then, uh, you know, you're likely to get to a good place uh, in a conversation with someone else. Now, moving on to, to chatting a bit about what it's like to prepare and, and argue a case before the, the U.S. Supreme Court, let's start at the beginning. How do you t- typically tend to find yourself on cases that will be considered by the high court? Um, have you worked on the appeal below, or do you sometimes join on after the case's petition for review at the, the high court? Uh, well, both uh, both happen, and um, I don't know that there's any one is more common than any other. Uh, because I'm at a a large law firm, um, we do have uh, a number of cases that we handle at the court of appeal stage, or the state uh, appellate or supreme court stage, then become the subject of uh, petitions for cert, but. Uh, probably just as often we get involved in cases where, uh, you know, another uh, lawyer has handled the case up to that point, and then we come in at the Supreme Court stage. But in either circumstance, whether you've handled the appeal below or, or taken it up afterwards, are there, there are certain qualities that you particularly are looking for when you decide either in the one circumstance to, to bring an appeal or to take on one? Yeah, well, the, the special circumstances, I think, arise when you're deciding whether to petition the court. Uh, because it is very difficult to uh, get the court to grant cert. And so uh, you always want to be very clear with clients about whether they have a case that realistically has a chance to be considered. And so, you know, what matters 
at the Supreme Court stage in terms of getting the court to hear the case is less whether the case was wrongly decided, although that, that is an important factor, but it's uh, the, the, the far more important factor is whether the case meets the criteria the court has identified for uh, cases that it will hear. And, and of those criteria, the most important is whether the lower courts are divided um, on the issue that you want the Supreme Court to hear. So unless you can show that um, the, uh, the judges in your case have applied a rule uh, that's different than the rule that would have been applied uh, had your case arisen in some different uh, court in a different part of the country, um, it's going to be exceptionally hard to get the Supreme Court interested. Um, the other uh, the other situation where the court will typically get involved is if the lower courts have held um, that uh, some state or federal law is unconstitutional. And if, that's, if they've done that, then the court will be interested to review that as well if it's a, you know, if it's a novel uh, ruling. But generally, a circuit split is the necessary, but even then not sufficient uh, 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 criterion for review. And so, you know, that may or may not be uh, present in a given case. And if it's not there, uh, then you really have to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with the client about whether it's worth um, taking the case up to the court, uh, even on the petition stage. Could you take me a bit further into the, the psychology of a partitioner? You're facing those long odds. Is it is it daunting? Is it worrisome to know that the, the amount of effort that you have to put in could go for not? Have you had petitions that have uh, been denied review? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, anybody who has practiced before the court, uh, you know, at all is likely had a petition denied. That's what happens, you know, most all the time. Uh, it's funny. I mean, every time I filed a petition, you know, by the time I'm done with it, I think, oh, you know, of course, got a grand cert on this. You know, this case is so worthy. But, you know, time after time, the petitions get denied. So it's it. Um, it's very uh if from if you look at it in those terms it you know it certainly is uh frustrating cuz in all likelihood the petition's denied and it's denied without an explanation so you don't know how close you got or necessarily what the reasons were um but you know for a, for a case to be granted uh the stars have to align you know you need that circuit split you need an issue that uh comes up frequently because even if there's a split, but the split is with a case that's 20 years old, and there aren't really a lot of cases in that area, the court's going to say, well, yeah, there's a split, but, you know, is this really important enough? You know, we'll wait uh, another time to decide. You know, if this issue keeps coming up, maybe we'll decide we need to decide it. Um, so, you know, there are those kind of factors uh, that cut against review. And then there's also the question of even if you have a really important legal issue embedded in your case, if the facts of your case aren't really what um, the court tends to think of as a good vehicle for the court to decide the issue, whether because your facts are idiosyncratic or whether because the opinion you're seeking review of um, just doesn't do a very good job at all of discussing the issue, um, then the court may think, oh, we'll wait for a different case that, that will, you know, present the issues to us uh, in a way that will allow us to make the best uh, decision possible uh, on this issue. 
certainly a lot going into it. And one particular element framing the argument in, in those preliminary briefs, either as the petitioner or the respondent. Could you take me through that? Say, if you're the respondent, your side has prevailed at the lower court. Are you essentially reiterating the arguments that did prevail there? Um, and on the other side, if you're the petitioner, um, obviously you have to do something a bit different. Are you, you strengthening the arguments or conceiving new ones um, when you're petitioning for review? Sure. Well, let's start with the petitioner. So the petitioner won't um, come up with new legal arguments because you really need to confine yourself to what was argued and decided below. But um, you will look at those issues differently. I mean, the first thing you'll do is you'll look and see, uh, you know, what would other circuit courts uh, or state Supreme Courts you know, what What would they have done with this issue? Would they have decided it differently? Can I show a clean uh, split of authority such that I could say, uh, for example, you know, had my case arisen in the Third Circuit or the Fifth Circuit or the Seventh Circuit instead of wherever it arose, say the Ninth Circuit, the result would have been different. Look at these other cases and you will see they disagree with the Ninth Circuit rule. Well, when you're in the Ninth Circuit, um, you're not likely to spend as much time in your brief saying, well, here's what the Third Circuit would do, or the Fifth or the Seventh, uh, because the Ninth Circuit is going to do, and the panel in the Ninth Circuit will be bound by what prior panels in the Ninth Circuit have done. So, you know, you may, and I think it's a good practice, uh, to point to the other circuits in the when you're in the Court of Appeals, but it's much less of a focus of your brief. And the uh, when you get to the Supreme Court cert petition stage, you are hugely focused on, you know, what do other courts around the country do with this legal issue? The other thing, and this is really often quite new, is you you really go into the public policy implications for the rule of law. You know what, you know what is the impact on the rest of the country um, and the similarly situated entities or individuals around the country? of having, you know, rule A versus rule B as the rule of law for this issue. And you really want to convey to the justices, uh, you know, this is important that we, that you, the court, sort this out. You know, however you come down with the rule in the circuit I've been in or the rule in these other circuits, it matters. And, uh, you know, a third thing you do, which you may or may not have done at the Court of Appeal stage, is you enlist amicus support, if at all possible, you uh, go to organizations that have an interest in your uh, area that you happen to be in, and you let them know about your uh, petition, and you urge them to weigh in, because they often can develop uh, the importance, the national importance of the issue um, uh, with more uh, data and more perspective than you as the representative of a single individual or a single entity, you know, are in a position to do. So in that respect, the petition is different because the ultimate, you know, the upshot of a petition is not necessarily to say the decision below is wrong, although you always point that out, but is to say the case is important and meets your criteria, Supreme Court, for hearing it. And so you can see then, faced with a petition that does those things, the respondent's brief uh, in opposition to the petition will be different than it was uh, below because there uh, the only thing the respondent really had to worry about was convincing the court to uphold the lower court decision. 
Here, um, the respondent in the Supreme Court has got to also uh, explain why there isn't really a circuit split, you know, why these other courts were faced, for example, with different fact patterns and that their decisions should be viewed as limited to those facts that were in front of them, that they haven't really created a split. Uh, and very often, you know, to have a, a clear split is unusual. So there are often very important arguments a, a respondent can make to, um, uh, you know, to undercut the petitioner's claim that there's a split of authority. And then, uh, you know, the respondent will often feel that the petitioner's presentation of the importance of the issue is overstated and that, you know, the petitioner is saying the you know, the sky is falling, and in reality, the sky is perfectly intact and <laughs> will be there tomorrow just as it was uh, yesterday and today. And so uh, the respondent makes those points. And again, those wouldn't have been made in, in the Court of Appeals. To tease out one of those points a little bit, you mentioned the, the growing prevalence of public policy arguments on the petitioner side. Is that, um, I guess, how, how recent is that? What do you think might explain that as the sort of thing that is encouraged by courts, and that's why it's used more? Why do you think that's a more prevalent tool? You know, it is. it has been uh, a, a trend over the last 20 or 25 years, really, uh, uh, to file amicus briefs. And I, I think um, you know, folks that watch the Supreme Court and, and see how the Supreme Court decides cases, uh, and many of whom have had experience as law clerks at the Supreme Court, um, they see the importance and the influence of amicus briefs, and so um, they realize that those briefs can be very helpful to the justices. And some of the justices in interviews and other forum have have agreed that um, you know a, a good, well formulated amicus brief is very valuable to them, and particularly at the cert petition stage, because at the cert petition stage. You know, it's one of the harder things for the justices to assess is how important is this issue. And so when you have uh, an organization come in and, you know, step back from the particular facts of the case and go beyond the record in that, you know, particular case that was developed just on the parties in that case and, and say, well, look, here is a whole range of similar litigation throughout the country. And here's what's going on in that litigation. And here are the kinds of interests. And, you know, here's what the impact has been of other decisions. Um, and, you know, here are the real stakes uh, as we see them. Uh, you know, that gives the court a lot of context and background to help them figure out, you know, is this really a case that merits our attention? At this stage, there's obviously quite a bit going on and a lot of considerations and um, arguments to be made and, and nuance within different arguments. And often you're you're working on these appeals with a, a team of lawyers and perhaps teams from different firms, different groups of folks um, all collaborating together. Can it be difficult to end up producing one unified product to give to the court if people have slightly different views as to what the best arguments would be or how they could best be presented? You know, um, you would you would think that to be the case when you see all the names, but in practice, I haven't really found that it is that difficult. So, you know, certainly uh, it it can be, but almost always um, the clients understand that there needs to be one uh, firm, one lawyer, ultimately in charge uh, to make the the decisions as to what uh, 
the the petition will say or what the brief will say. And, um, you know, and, and appellate lawyers in general are really good. I think one of their skills is uh, listening to others, you know, hearing the different points of view and then uh, coming up with a recommendation that uh, is reasonable and, you know, makes the, puts the, you know, the client's interests in the best light. So as long as the client has identified who the responsible firm is, and the, and the Supreme Court facilitates this because as a, you know, by rule, one individual has to be designated the counsel of record. Mm-hmm. And it's only one. <laughs> you can't have, you know, three, uh, not every firm gets a counsel of record. So there is a person who's ultimately got responsibility for the case. And um, so, you know, it, Typically, it's not that much of an issue because people express their views, um, and then the counsel of record uh, makes the call as to how any disagreements are resolved. Getting into preparation for oral arguments, maybe a logistical question first. How do you know, or when in the stage do you know who will be the one who's who's giving the oral argument? Is that something that happens early on? Usually, it usually it's early on. I mean, usually you you do know. Um, if it, it it'll it you know it'll either be the person who argued it in the court below, uh, or if the person who argued in the court below or the client wants to make a change at the Supreme Court stage, then you know part of the process of making the change is making a change to someone else who will you know be the counsel of record and argue the case. Uh, you know it can get complicated. There are situations where the court uh, has two petitions from two different. Uh, petitioners that each are raising the same question and the court will consolidate the case into one argument and tell those parties you you have to decide you know who's going to argue the case and those can get you know very difficult and sometimes those are actually decided by a coin flip uh, if you can believe it but uh, so it's not always easy in the hard cases but in in the great run of cases uh, it's usually pretty straightforward and you know at the outset who it's going to be Okay, then after that process and um, is complete and you, you know you'll be giving arguments before the court and your preparation begins in earnest, uh, how, how similar or dissimilar is that process preparing an argument before uh, SCOTUS as compared to, to other appellate panels? Are there particular thoughts or objectives that you have uh, in mind? Yes, it, it is a different process. Um, the oral argument at the Supreme Court is different than at the Court of Appeals. It it lasts longer. You know, at the Court of Appeals, uh, you know, it's often 15 or, or 20 minutes. Uh, and even in those appellate courts where it's 30 minutes, the way it is at the Supreme Court, you know, at some state Supreme Courts, you get 30 minutes. Um, you don't, you, you're never before a bench as active as the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, in particularly over the last... 15 or so years at the Supreme Court, we've had uh, uh, justices who are very engaged, who love to ask questions, you know, who want to ask more questions than the time will permit each of them to ask. And so they're kind of jumping in on top of each other to ask questions. So you just don't see that in in most all the panels that you're ever going to have in a, in a court of appeals. And what that means uh, for the advocate is you need to be able to answer these questions in one to two sentences, because that's pretty much all you're going to get before you'll get interrupted by another question. 
And so you need to know your case so thoroughly uh, and have uh, really thought through how you would want to answer a, a huge range of questions that eight or nine extremely bright individuals uh, who think about these issues all the time are going to come up with. Um, that the normal sort of preparation that you would do in the Court of Appeals just won't be enough. And so um, the preparation is fundamentally different. You spend more time getting ready. Uh, you do more moot courts. Uh, and you go into much more depth in your uh, reading and mastering of the, of the uh, prior cases, particularly the Supreme Court's cases, uh, than you would uh, if you were in the Court of Appeals. Speaking of an, an active court and jurists being eager to jump in and, and ask questions, um, how much do you consider the particular personalities or inquiries or interests of particular jurists as you're preparing for the case? And also, do you tend to, to have a sense of which of the justices might be the ones that you're, you most need to persuade if you, say, assume that a few are most likely going to side with you? Do you, do you make some effort or... Um, specialize your, your arguments or tailor them to the justice that you think might swing the case one way or the other? Uh, yes, uh, you do. I Probably yes to all those questions. Um, so, um, you, you know, unlike, um, well, it's different in a, in a state uh, Supreme Court, uh, but let's just think about the, you know, the circuit courts. Um, and some of them are relatively small, but many of them, you know, you they're large enough that you really won't know who your panel is going to be until, you know, a week before argument or, um, uh, you know, shortly before argument. Uh, you know, from day one, you at the time you're writing your cert petition or responding to a, a cert petition, you're thinking about what argument is going to be persuasive to what justice. And the, you have such a track record of what each of these justices thinks that you have a lot to go on in preparing. Uh, uh, so you absolutely are thinking, all right, what are the kind of questions I'll hear from, you know, Justice Kennedy? You know, what are the kind of questions I'm going to hear from the Chief Justice? Um, you know, what, you know, how would uh, Justice Kagan come at this or Justice Sotomayor come at this? You know, these justices uh, and other justices, uh, really all of the justices except Justice Thomas, uh, enjoys asking questions and asks multiple questions in almost every argument. So you prepare not only for questions in the abstract from the court, but you are preparing for questions you are likely to get. And, and you definitely think about justices who might be critical to swing the vote. Because in the difficult cases, the 5-4 cases, um, you know, it is, or, you know, in today's court, what would be a 5-3 case, um, you know, you depending on the issue, you can feel fairly confident in advance, um, you know, where the middle of the court might be and where that extra vote might have to come from beyond the votes that you feel, you know, somewhat confident going in, you, you may likely get. Uh, and so you, you definitely ask yourself, all right, what, what's likely to be really on that justice's mind and what's the most convincing way I can respond to, uh, to persuade them. You say that the Supreme Court is unique in that, uh, you, you know, who will be hearing your appeal. You're handling 
a case this term, Jennings versus Rodriguez, which we won't get into in specifics, but that's not entirely true in this case, the the fact that you know who will be hearing it. Certainly the past several months, the makeup of the court has been a bit uncertain. Has it been a unique challenge? Has there been anything different in preparing for a court of eight jurists or potentially nine or you know who knows who that ninth might be? Um, what's that been like? Uh, well, yeah, I, I will put Jennings uh, to one side just because that is a uh, a case that's uh, pending. But in in general, um, you know, for anybody who's got any case pending before the court right now, um, it's very different than it was back when the justices when we had nine with Justice Scalia, and different than it will be whenever a, a replacement is finally uh, confirmed, um, because. Uh, you know, a 4-4 decision, uh, if that's what it ends up in and that's what's issued, that does affirm the judgment below. Um, so you still have to count to four votes if you're trying to overcome, uh, if you're trying to preserve the decision below, or you need to count to five votes if you're trying to, you know, reverse the decision below. So you're still doing a head count and asking yourself those questions about who, where my vote's coming from. Um, and, you know, and then the other issue is, I suppose, you know, we're seeing already this term, the courts issued some decisions with fairly narrow, uh, reasoning that have been unanimous. And so the courts, you know, being extremely cautious right now, it's taken very few cases and the cases it's taken, it's deciding very narrowly. So it's moving in kind of baby steps. And so you you know, as an advocate, you are thinking about that. You know, what are the implications for my case? The more you can make it um, a baby steps case and, you know, vindicate your client with, you know, by hitting a bunt single rather than a home run, you know, that's, you're very much thinking about that. Yeah, I think a, a case that will be featured on another segment of the show is the Salmon versus the U.S. A securities fraud case from last week, which did come out on a, a fairly narrow um, holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that you know, you know, you'll see. I think there've been you know several other cases you could also talk about from that perspective, and and that's really you know it's uh, certainly reflective of uh, this unusual period in the court's history, where it's having this prolonged um, time uh, in uh, you know without a deciding vote. This always seems, in speaking to attorneys, like a, a fairly kind of unknowable mystery, the extent to which at oral arguments there's room for persuasion in, in the court. Um, I think sometimes attorneys will think that if they go into oral argument or when they go into oral argument, the the panel there before has largely made up its mind. Do you think there is room for much persuasion before the U.S. Supreme Court? Is, it, uh, is that quantum any greater or smaller than in, in other appellate panels? I think it's slightly greater at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, because the justices don't uh, get together before the argument to talk about the case. Um, between the time they grant cert and the, and the time they hear the case, you know, they don't they, they, they work individually with their law clerks to uh, reach uh, a tentative view in their own minds, but they don't work with each other. And that's fundamentally different than uh, the way uh, a lot of the courts of appeals work. It's it's 
100% different than the way the California Supreme Court works. So, you know, at the California Supreme Court, the justices have uh, met, uh, talked about, circulated a draft uh, uh, ruling, um, you know, resolved uh, differences of view, at least tentatively, about, you know, the way the case should come out. All of that happens before the oral argument. So in that court, oral argument, you know, chiefly serves to kind of refine uh, ways in which they might reach the result they've already tentatively decided to to reach, but it doesn't. It's a very very unusual case where it could flip a decision. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, you know, by and large, by the time of argument, most of the justices have made up their minds, but um, but not all of them all of the time. And I think oral argument can be, you know, a very productive time. Um, for uh, justices to see some of the weaknesses in, you know, one or the other side's case, and to, you know, it's an opportunity for the advocate to uh, provide, you know, additional uh, uh, support uh, for a justice who is looking to persuade uh, one of his or her colleagues on an issue later at the conference. Um, you know, it. Uh, uh, it can expose weaknesses that, you know, perhaps the briefs didn't do as good a job of exposing in one or the other side's case. Um, it's uh, so it's a it's a much more dynamic uh, and free flowing uh, debate that's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court than is typically going on in other courts. And I think as a result, there's more opportunity for impact uh, at that stage. When you're appearing before the court, when you go to Washington to the, the country's court of last resort, you know, a body that has such historical prominence and plays such an important role in the American story and uh, such a hallowed institution, you're appearing before um, justices that themselves take on sometimes sort of a mythic quality. Do you have to sort of set that aside mentally and, and focus on the fact that you're you're there to do a job and it's not and it's a central character too dissimilar from the job you do before other less hollowed panels? Um, or is there some value in, in keeping in mind uh, you know, the, the illustrious history of that, that judicial body so it inspires some, uh, some confidence and some inspiration in you when you're preparing those arguments or, or delivering them? Uh, well, if there's a way to forget that you're at the U.S. Supreme Court. I haven't come upon it. <laughs> it's just too um, too present and too monumental to, uh, you know, to put out of mind. I mean, even uh, those who've argued, you know, you know, dozens of cases, you know, the handful of, of uh, uh, lawyers who, who've um, perhaps, you know, for long careers in the Solicitor General's office or uh, otherwise have, have appeared scores of times, you know, they have butterflies. It just, there's no way not to, um, uh, to get excited about being at the Supreme Court. Rex Lee, who was a, a solicitor general and then argued many cases in private practice after that said, uh, something to the effect of if, you know, if I ever didn't have butterflies, I'd know it was time for me to stop arguing cases. <laughs> Uh, and he was as relaxed and convincing an advocate as has ever appeared. So, um, 
you know, it's, it is wonderfully exhilarating. And I think the, what I try to do anyway is just to draw on that energy um, to be as present and as, you know, in the moment as possible. And the energy that's in that courtroom at 10 o'clock in the morning when the court is in session and, uh, you know, there's uh, gaveled into order and uh, uh, the buzzer sounds and the curtains part and the justices sort of magically appear behind the three sets of curtains and take the bench uh, is one of the most dramatic moments, uh, not only that a lawyer would ever see, but I think that most of us would ever see. It's it's high uh, political constitutional theater. Uh, it's an amazing moment. And, you know, when you're in the courtroom arguing, you're, you know, you're all of you is there. And uh, when you're done, you're kind of exhausted, but you're exhilarated and uh, you sort of can't wait to do it again. Can you take me into that that moment when you first step to the lectern and you, you're about to deliver your arguments? What uh, what do you have in mind and what do you have in, in front of you? What do you have notes, uh, your argument, um, the record? What, um, what all is there? By the time you're at the lectern, um, I, at least what I have, what I think what most have, um, if you're the petitioner, so if you're speaking first, you have decided what your you know, your opening paragraph will be, um, not that you'll necessarily give it word for word, but you, you know, you basically have two or three sentences at least firmly in your mind as that you'll begin with. Usually you're interrupted within two or three sentences, but, um, actually there was an argument, uh, just a couple of weeks ago where the advocate, uh, from the solicitor general's office was able to go, uh, for, about two transcript pages without getting interrupted, which I haven't seen happen in many, many years. But so you need to be prepared to go a little longer. But for most, you know, for most, you've got that introduction, and then uh, you've got in mind three or four points that you, you know, you'll have on a page just to have in front of you as a crutch. But by the time you're arguing, you really don't need it. You've got those points well in mind. But those are the points you want to be sure come out at some point uh, during your time. And then what I like to have is sort of uh, what I think of as a cheat sheet of key uh, either statutes or uh, record sites or, you know, sometimes a a key page of a a case or two. Things that might be difficult, you know, you might have 20 of these that you think there's a decent chance you might want to mention. You'll in you know, and you you may want to just have them on a page so that if in the moment they fly out of your mind, uh, you know, and you can't come up with, you know, 8 U.S.C. 1220B1C25, you know, ZZ or whatever, some, you know, crazy number, you at least know it's right there and you can be sure to give the court the accurate site. But beyond that, you really, you know, you don't have time to be flipping through notes or uh, looking down. It's, it's tough really to look down at the lectern. I mean, you want to make eye contact the whole way. You're getting quick questions. You're going to be able to answer them in a sentence or two. Uh, so, I mean, my eyes during an argument are on the judges. They're not on my notes. They're not at the briefs. 
and you don't really need that stuff by that point. Is that the, the main difference in arguing cases before um, the Supreme Court that you'll be fielding more questions more rapidly than in other panels? Are there any other particular differences or different strategies that you employ during the, the argument? Other than that, not really, uh, because the best practices there are the best practices anywhere. You know, you 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 have to answer the question first and then give the explanation if you if you want to qualify your answer, uh, you don't start with the qualification. You start with the answer, and then you give the qualification. That's best practices anywhere, but it's critical at the Supreme Court because they will get so frustrated with the lack of an answer, um, given how little time is available uh, to discuss the case from their point of view, that they'll just start jumping on you for not answering the question. <laughs> That's a terrible place to be in as an advocate. So, uh, but. No, the other ba- the best principles are, you know, are the are the same. Um, I guess the one other difference I would say is that in some appellate courts, uh, not all of the panel may necessarily be as prepared as they might be, and so you you would need to be prepared to tell more of the factual story uh, to engage one of the panel members who, for whom this wasn't a primary case that he or she focused on. And so you're in a position to really teach the case a little bit to uh, one or more of the panelists. Whereas at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, there's there may be a key factual issue that needs to be surfaced. Uh, but, you know, those justices are prepared. They don't hear that many cases. <laughs> you know, they've, they've carefully thought about the ones they're going to hear. So uh, you are, you know, you're only dealing with the toughest issues um, there, and you can presume that the court has a very firm grasp on, you know, the the factual and legal background. You mentioned at the end of arguments, you're often exhausted. Do you also at at that time have have any sense as to how effective you are if you persuaded the the, uh, the justices that you you needed to persuade? Um. Uh, it depends. Some cases, yes. Uh, you know, some cases, um, the body language tells you a lot, and you feel like, yeah, I, you know, this is good. Um, but some cases, um, it's less clear. You know, if, if the questioning is both unexpected and not really on the points that you thought it would be, then you can emerge a little puzzled. You know, you might, if there's kind of a disconnect in that sense between the way the parties have been thinking about the case and the way the court's thinking about it, then those are the situations where you come out and say, I I don't know what they're going to do. But if they've asked the hard questions that you were expecting to to, to be asked, then I think very often you can say, well, these are the questions we got from these justices, and this was sort of the body language around it, and so we feel like, you know, we have a pretty good idea which direction the court's going to go. Maybe just one last one, tying back to your time as a clerk for Justice Brennan. Did you get then from, from him or other justices a sense of what they feel are some of the more effective approaches that appellate counselors can take in at the Supreme Court? You know, two things leap to mind. I mean, one is um, 
the advocate who is uh, helpful to the court is, um, you know, is the one that a justice looks forward to hearing from. So, you know, I've always thought of a, an oral argument really at any level as the opportunity to have a conversation with the judge. Um, and to me, uh, I mean, it was a huge privilege clerking for Justice Brennan and you know, being able to you know, work up a case and then sit with him uh, as the law clerks would do and talk through the case and give the judge, give Justice Brennan in that case, my thoughts as to, you know, what I you know, what I saw in the case and, and what the issues were and, and how I thought it should come out. Well, this I've always thought of as kind of the next best thing. <laughs> Oral argument is the next best thing to being able to go in and talk to a justice and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about the case. And, and so I think with that mindset, you're in a position to be as helpful to the court as possible. And, and then in, in that process, the single most important question, you know, once you think you know how the case should come out, or if you're a lawyer representing a client, once, you know, you know who your client is and what result they need, then you ask, well, what is the best argument on the other side? If I'm arguing this case for the other side, what is the absolute best argument I have? And the question then becomes, why is it that the other side should win? notwithstanding this very best point. And if you can answer that question, then you're ready for the oral argument. Um, so, you know, I guess those are, those are the things that kind of were clear to me over the course of the clerkship and really they're, they're still true, uh, today. Um, you know, a final point, just thinking back um, on the clerkship was um, the ultimate, you know, futility sometimes uh, in, of, of argument, um, whether in the briefs or at oral argument, you know, there's some cases are unwinnable. Um, and I, I remember a case, it was the court took it because of a circuit split. There was a lawyer for the taxpayer it was a tax case. So the government's on one side, the taxpayers on the other the taxpayer's lawyer wrote one of the worst briefs we saw. Um, it was a disaster of a brief. Um, the lawyer had no idea how to write a brief. It was filled with, you know, every other sentence had three exclamation points after it. You know, it was chock full of boldface. I mean, it broke every rule your high school English teacher, you know, told you. Um, uh, and yet, uh, and then the oral argument was a similar disaster. But it was a circuit split, and the you know the justices had to decide the question in the way that made the most sense, and they decided that the taxpayers' case was the winning case. And really, nothing the Solicitor General's office could have done could have salvaged that that victory uh, for them. So, at the end of the day, you know you're an advocate; <laughs> you do the best you can with the case and the facts and the law that you have, and uh, you know that can help you maybe fall asleep at uh, 3 a.m. if, you know, if everything else fails. Sure. Well, uh, hopefully you don't find yourself on, on too many of those unwinnable cases in the future. I think we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Mr. Mark Haddad of Sidley Austin, thanks so much for being on the podcast to, to share your views here. I really appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. 
time, that was Mark Haddad, a partner at Sidley Austin, discussing his, his experiences in appeals before SCOTUS. We'll move now to a discussion of a specific U.S. Supreme Court case, Salmon versus the U.S., which filed last week. Here's my conversation with Peter Altman. We're very happy to be joined now by Mr. Peter Altman, the senior counsel at Aiken Gump, formerly worked with the SEC and now handles matters dealing with government enforcement and regulatory matters. Mr. Altman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This case that we're chatting about, uh, Salmon versus the U.S. out of the, the U.S. Supreme Court last week, pertains to insider trading and clarifies, um, reinforces existing doctrine relating to it and criminal liability for, for certain parties involved in it. Um, perhaps at the start, we should identify the players here in this drama. We have three important uh, parties. Can you tell me a bit about who they are and, and how they're connected to one another? So the story begins with uh, Maher Kara, who's a former investment banker at Citigroup. Uh, Maher was close with his older brother, who uh, was known as Michael. And uh, Maher provided tips of material non-public information relating to merger and acquisition deals that he was working on while at Citigroup. He provided those tips to Michael. Now, Michael, in turn, was close with uh, Mr. Salman, who is the namesake of the case. Salman was the brother of Maher's wife. In other words, Salman was the brother-in-law of the original tipper, Maher. Now, Maher made tips to Michael. Michael then made tips to Salman. Uh, the evidence at trial showed that Maher did not know that Salman was eventually receiving the information, but the evidence also showed that Salman knew the information was coming ultimately from Maher. Yeah, and we'll we'll get more into to the ways in which those different levels of of knowledge pertain to the the conviction and, and the appeal. As we get started here in the federal district court, Salman is convicted, and there's some some guiding high court U.S. Supreme Court precedent that bears on on his liability. In this case, that's Dirk's first SEC, a case from roughly 20 years ago, I believe. What did that case hold and how does it pertain here? So in, in Dirk's, which is a 1983 Supreme Court opinion, uh, the court established the basic template for tipper, tippy liability. And it held that for a tipper of material non-public information to be liable, um, liability will flow when he or she discloses material non-public information to someone else in breach of a fiduciary duty in order to receive a quote-unquote personal benefit. Now, a tippee, someone who receives information, uh, is liable if he or she knows that the tipper has disclosed inside information in breach of a fiduciary duty and for personal benefit, but trades on the basis of that information anyway. Now, the critical point of Dirks as it pertains to the Salman case is that in the Dirks decision, the Supreme Court specifically envisioned liability based on the gift of material non-public information to a relative or friend who then decides to trade. So you can infer a personal benefit just based on that fact alone, but the identity of the tippy, the original tippy, if it's a, a close relative or, or friend. Right. Well, the, in the gifting scenario, and, and this was reinforced in Salman, uh, it, it's essentially the same as if the 
tipper had traded themselves. That that is the logic, and, and we can get into that. Um, but it's less based on the personal benefit angle, and more essentially the the tipper when gifting information to a relative or friend is essentially stepping into the shoes uh, of the person that they have given the information to. So you set up Dirks, but now there's another case that will pertain to this appeal, and it decided by the Second Circuit during the dependency of Salman's appeal before the Ninth Circuit. Um, and it seems to, to differ a bit from Dirks, and it, it gives here Salman what he thinks is some ammo to attack his conviction. What What is the holding in, in Newman, and how does that pertain here? That That's right. So before the Ninth Circuit considered Salman's case, the Second Circuit, uh, the, the Court of Appeals in the Northeast, issued its decision in Newman, as you said. And in Newman, the government was required in a tipper, tippy insider trading case to present proof of a meaningfully close personal relationship that generates an exchange that is objective, consequential, and represents at least a potential gain of a pecuniary or similarly valuable nature. Now, that's a mouthful. Uh, what that really means, in essence, is that uh, notwithstanding the gift um, liability envisioned by the Dirks court, Newman envisioned the requirement of having some form of a quid pro quo, even in cases uh, involving the gifting of material non-public information. Now, the genesis of Newman it was the aggressive prosecution out of the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office in insider trading cases, including of people several levels below the original tip of material non-public information in violation of a, of a duty. Um, Newman was a very difficult case to square with Dirks, and uh, the federal government in particular uh, envisioned a, a world where the gifting of confidential information would not be actionable in an insider trading case. And that really laid the groundwork uh, for, for what was to come the wake of Newman created a lot of controversy. Okay, and then the, the Ninth Circuit and Salman's appeal gets to reckon with it here. What was their response to, to Salman's argument based on, on Newman? So Salman argues that uh, this case, that his case involved the gifting of material non-public information and that thus under the logic of the Second Circuit's opinion in Newman, it was not actionable insider trading because no personal benefit flowed up the chain to the tipper. Now, the Ninth Circuit squarely rejected that premise, and it held that under Dirks, a tippee, so someone who has received material non-public information, can be liable as part of an insider trading prosecution, even when an insider makes a gift of confidential information uh, to a trading relative or friend and, and doesn't receive this tangible personal benefit. So in other words, the Ninth Circuit held that, uh, that proof that the insider disclosed the material non-public information with the intent to benefit a trading relative or friend, that's enough. Uh, that is all is needed to establish the breach of the duty element of an insider trading case. No tangible pecuniary personal benefit required. And then Salman petitions the Supreme Court, which grants review here. Could we sort of reframe his argument? Is he just bringing the, the same arguments that that Newman is provides him relief here? Or did he add any anything else? What, what are his principal arguments here before the, the high court? 
So Salman essentially wants the court to endorse Newman uh, because the evidence, like I said, at his trial showed that Maher, the original tipper in the chain, simply gifted the material non-public information to his brother, Michael, without receiving any sort of tangible personal benefit. That is, that is Salman's argument in its simplest form. So if there's no presupposition that there's some pecuniary benefit flowing back to the tipper, then in Salman's um, view, there should not be liability. That's right. The government has a, obviously a, a different position. It seems um, that it's also different from the one that the court comes down on. But what, what is the, the government's position here? So the government actually identifies Salman as a case to expand the insider trading law beyond what, what the court said in Dirks. And so... Um, the government asked the Supreme Court in Salman to, ar- to say that a gift of confidential information to anyone, not just the trading relative or friend, that that can be enough to prove securities fraud. And, and the import of that argument is that disclosures of material non-public information in the eyes of the government for any purpose other than a quote-unquote corporate reason, that that could be actionable insider trading. And then it seems like the the court comes down sort of in between those those two. How does the court rule here as to this question? The court does not go as far as the government wants it to go. And what the court really does is affirm the the lower court ruling, what the Ninth Circuit had to say, and importantly, reaffirm Dirks's approval of liability in a gifting situation. Um, and then the the court went on to specifically note that a point in Newman um, regarding gifting, it did not approve. And so what it says is that to the extent the Second Circuit held that the tipper must also receive something of a pecuniary or similarly valuable nature in exchange for a gift to family or friends, uh, we agree with the Ninth Circuit that this requirement is inconsistent with Dirks. And so the import there is gifting liability will, will continue. Maybe we could unpack a little bit further that the, the gifting scenario. So the court uses that as, as its principal sort of foundation for its holding. When it, it says that the situation here where um, Maher gives information to his brother, Michael, and Michael uses that information to trade, uh, is no, it's not much different from if Maher used the information himself to unduly gain some money and then gave that instead, that money to his brother. Um, how how is that illustrative of the the doctrine here, and and how does it reinforce the holding? So that's exactly right. It's it's perfectly clear that Maher would have incurred liability had he personally traded on the information that he learned while working at Citigroup, and then rather than just pocketing the money himself, just given given the proceeds of his illegal trading to his brother as a gift. So instead, he in effect achieves the same result as if he had traded himself and given the proceeds of the money to his brother by actually just giving the material non-public information to his brother and allowing him to trade on it. And the Salmon Court reasoned that Dirk specified that when a tipper gives inside information to a trading relative or friend, the jury can fairly infer that the tipper meant to provide the equivalent of a cash gift. And and actually in Salman, this inference was especially powerful because in one instance, uh, Michael actually uh, 
asked his brother for a favor, and the brother offered money, um, but Michael instead asked uh, for material non-public information from Maher. And so this really showed the essential equivalence on the facts presented uh, in Solomon of inside information and money. Just as a, a follow-up to that, why does that logic not push the court towards the position that the government is proposing? I mean, that situation would be true whether the information was given to a non-relative or a non-friend. That um, that situation would be like if the tipper used it himself and gave money to that non-relative or friend. That's right. Uh, the, the problem really is, is the further you get away from a close friend or an actual close relative, uh, the more attenuated it, it can become. And this is one of the unanswered questions of Salman is, is, is what would happen in a situation where the tipping was not between close friends and in these more ambiguous situations, um, for example, an alleged tip to a casual acquaintance. I think the Second Circuit's analysis in Newman is really going to be the helpful proxy to sorting out whether there's liability. Um, because the further you get away from the, the bedrock point made by the Dirks court that uh, liability can flow um, essentially when a tipper gifts to a close relative or friend that it's it's the effective he, he's almost helping himself you know by giving a gift to someone who's close to him the further away you get from that uh, the more the personal benefit um, issue is going to going to come into question and and all that stated a bit differently when you give a gift to someone there's presumably some benefit to to yourself particularly when the person is close to you now the further away the person is from you in terms of relationship the less uh the less clear that benefit is going to be the opinion in this case is a a scant i think 11 or 12 pages and fairly clear and and concise is that was the question that it was answer, the court was answering here contentious at all? Was the the reason they took the case just because of the shadow of Newman that needed to be to be clarified? Yeah, the the, the shadow of Newman was was long, uh, no doubt, and and like I said earlier, uh, many people really struggled to square the the broad holding in Newman with uh, what the Supreme Court said back in 1983 in Dirks and its approval of liability in a scenario where someone gifts information to a, a friend or relative who then goes goes on and trades. Now, I think many people had hoped that the Supreme Court would provide grander guidance with respect to, to insider trading, but, but that wasn't the case. Um, the quick and concise resolution of the case on the facts presented to the Supreme Court really was a signal, in in my view, that the court just couldn't square what Newman said with its prior holding in Dirks, and it felt appropriate just to speak on this simple issue. Okay, well, that, that sort of hints at the fact that there might be issues left open. You've, you've mentioned one already. What, what are some of the, the important lingering questions that remain after this ruling? So, so the big takeaway at a, at a macro level is, and this is something the Salman court itself acknowledged, is that there's going to continue to be difficult insider trading cases percolating through the federal court systems. Uh, insider trading cases are inherently fact-specific. Um, whether or not someone's a close friend or family, uh, we already mentioned that one. Um, when it's not a gifting case, the 
quantifiable nature of the personal benefit and, and what the tippy knew about that personal benefit. I think those are those are lingering questions that the Salmon Court recognized will continue to exist, but uh, also chose not to speak on. Um, another scenario that Salmon did not resolve is what's going to happen when the source of the material non-public information, so the would-be tipper, is simply boasting or engaging in loose talk about work, and there's no direct evidence that they actually intended to provide a gift to the would-be tippy. Um, the court's analysis in Salmon suggests that these situations are going to be difficult for the government to prove unless that they have good personal benefit evidence. And so more and more, even as Salmon uh, was up before the court for review, and I think going forward, we're going to see the government trying to avoid these thorny issues associated with proof of personal benefit. Uh, really to get around Newman, because at least in the Second Circuit, there are parts of Newman that continue to be good law. And uh, we've seen the SEC and the Department of Justice pursuing cases where um, the initial tip, so from the corporate insider in, in the classic case to the tip E, uh, that that is actually not being alleged to have been a violative tip, but rather a passing of information uh, pursuant to a duty of trust and confidence. And then it's the tippy that is the one that owes a duty to his tipper, his or her tipper friend. And then when that tippy passes the information along, they are breaching their duty owed to their friend. Uh, and that is the duty breach that is the source of the insider trading case. Oftentimes, when, when that theory is pushed, you can avoid the personal benefit issues that Newman uh, raises. Okay, well, it certainly sounds like there's some, some issues that remain unresolved. And so it sounds like there's a lot of good work out there for attorneys such as yourselves and, and courts as well. But uh, we'll leave it there for now, Mr. Peter Altman. They can come. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And with that, our show for December 16th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender very sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Mark Haddad and Peter Altman. I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's very much appreciated. Don't forget, CLE credit can be yours. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.